Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let's pray. Our Father, we know as we come to your word that it is the word of God. It is true, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for this word that you've given to us. We pray now that you'll illumine us, open our eyes to understand the significance of what you have revealed to us, and help us by your Holy Spirit, by the great power you have to change us, to live accordingly. Grant us all this. Grant us your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in this passage, we have come to the end of this section of a warning passage in this letter to the Hebrews, which began in chapter 3, and now it is ending here in chapter 4, verse 13, from 3.7 to 4.13. In this passage, we have a long warning as to what we should understand, and that is, enter the rest of God. It's an exhortation, an exhortation to enter the rest of God. That is, heavenly, eternal rest, eternal life. As well, we notice in this passage, verses 12 and 13, that he focuses his attention in his conclusion on the Word of God, the Word of God itself. And he identifies the Word of God by this analogy of it being a sword. When we think of the Word of God as a sword, he obviously, in this passage, is presenting the final part of his warning, his admonition, to listen carefully to what the Word of God says. And then, in verses 14 to 16, which we will see next time, he focuses on prayer and the fact that we have a great mediator, Christ, and that we ought to go to Him for all of our needs. After the warning, this long warning, He will have a short encouragement in verses 14 to 16, encouraging us to follow the ways of God and to come with all of our needs to God. In other words, in verses 12 to 16, he comes back to two basic disciplines, two basic means of grace that we have in the Christian life, which are the Word of God and prayer. This is what characterizes Christians, that they are diligently pursuing the Word of God and prayer. Well, let's see for our passage what he says in verses 12 to 13. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. He calls this word of God living and active. The word of God he has in mind here are all the words of the prophets and the apostles. All the words that we have in our Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He is including only this Bible. He's not including false religions. He's not including the books of Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism or any man-made books from atheism and communism, nothing like that. He's not including philosophy books. When he says the Word of God, he's talking about what we have contained in our Holy Bible from Genesis to Revelation. These words 
are what he has in mind. These are the words that were preached to the previous generations, particularly the generation of Moses in the wilderness. It was this word that they heard. They heard the truths of the gospel, the good news. Chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, they in Moses' time, had the gospel preached to them, the good news, just as we do. This is the word of God that he has in mind, the Bible, and only the Bible. And notice what he calls the Bible. He calls the Bible living and active. Living and active. It, they, the Bible is not dead and inactive. It's not dead and inactive, but the Bible is living and active, which means that it will accomplish whatever it is intended to accomplish. For the elect, for the believers, it has a purpose. And then for the reprobate or the wicked, it has another purpose. The Word of God has a twofold purpose for two groups of people. The Bible knows these two groups by different names, the righteous and the wicked in Psalm 1, or the elect and the reprobate, which we will see in verses such as 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. It has two consequences, two results, two outcomes. On behalf of the elect, it produces life. It produces life. That's why it's called the word of life, because by its very nature, it has life, and that life will benefit the believers, the elect, the sheep. It will benefit them because God will, in due time, open their eyes to understand, open their hearts to know, to receive whatever is being said, whatever is being read. They will understand it. They will believe it. It will benefit them. It will save their souls from sin. That's the sense in which it is alive and active or living and active for them. Example, Deuteronomy 32.47 says that this word, it is your life. In Acts 7.38, Stephen, referring to the Old Testament, says that God gave to the people living oracles. In the time of Moses, he gave them living oracles because they possessed life. 1 Peter chapter 1, not just for them, but also for us. 1 Peter 1, 23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. The living and abiding word of God produced salvation in us, produced a rebirth in us. We have been born again because of the Word of God. It did its work in us. James chapter 1. In James 1, verse 18, James refers to the benefit that is derived to, uh, to and for the elect. James 1, 18. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. And also verse 21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. This word is what saves our souls. This word is by the will of God, by the exercise of His will, He brings us forth by this word of God, that we might be the first fruits among His creatures. This is what the word 
produces in the elect. And one more is 1 Thessalonians 2.13. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says to the Thessalonians, And when you received from us the word of God's message, you received it for what it was. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The Word of God not only brings about a rebirth, but the Word of God produces good things in the person who believes that Word. We must believe whatever the Word of God says. In that sense, it is living and active. It's living and active. In that sense, it's not a dead Word. It's not an impotent Word. It's not a powerless Word. It's living and active and produces these good things, these benefits, these virtues in us, in those who are chosen of God, those who believe in God, who believe in the gospel of Christ. But on the other hand, on the other hand, this word of God does not always produce life in the hearers of this word. It does not always produce life in those who hear. This is why the Apostle Paul had to explain in Romans 9, 6, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. It's not as though the Word of God has failed. People misunderstand that when the Word of God is preached, everybody who hears it must hear it in order to believe it, meaning that everybody should receive it. And if everybody doesn't receive it, believe it, then there must be something wrong with the Word of God. It must be a powerless Word. And because it's a powerless Word, then the preacher needs to be inventive and creative and find other ways to get people to react and say that they love God, follow God, believe in Christ, believe in the gospel. No, that's not the way it works. And there is one passage in Isaiah 55 where God says, it will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. In Isaiah 55, yes, it will accomplish whatever purpose God has sent out his word. Let's, though, consider that sometimes the word of God is sent out, in many cases, the vast majority of cases, so that those people who heard it might be from death to death. They already are dead creatures. They are already dead in their trespasses and sins. But that word that's preached to them it is received upon a dead heart, and that dead heart will continue to be dead. How do we know that? 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. The Apostle Paul's point here is that this fragrance or aroma that we are, 
we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Those are the believers. Those are the elect, the sheep. But then there's another group that he says to the one an aroma from death to death, verse 16. From death to death. We know that people are dead in trespasses and sins. Let the dead bury their own dead, Jesus said. Those people who are dead, they remain in a state of death and they continue in that death, even though they hear the word. That's why the apostle says, and who is adequate for these things? Who am I that when I preach the Bible, when I preach the word of God, that it produces life in some and they go from life to life and in others they are already dead, but they continue in their deadness. And I am the one who is the instrument of making that happen. The Apostle Paul is saying he is an instrument, and all preachers are, instruments in making that happen. Life in some people and death in other people. He's saying who is adequate for, for these things because he knows he is dust and ashes. He doesn't deserve to be a purveyor a conveyor and preacher of these truths that produce one thing in one person and another result in another person. And how does that happen? Except by the faithful preaching. Because he says in verse 17, we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Those who are faithful to preach the word of God will produce these two results. But those who are unfaithful, those who peddle the word of God, they use the word to make money. They use the word for their wallets. That's what they do. When they peddle the word of God, they are not producing life and they're not producing death in the right way. What they're doing is they're making people think, they're making crowds of people think that they're not dead anymore, they're alive, they have salvation. Their salvation is secure and guaranteed and nothing is going to change that. Regardless of the way they live, there's no need to repent of sin. Everything is fine. God is only here to be a great-grandfather to you who has a bucket of candy in the sky that he distributes whenever he wants to people who will show up at church. That's the way that the preachers convey the God of heaven, the true and living God. They convey him, project him in those ways. And that's what people want. So in that sense, the peddlers of the word of God are deceiving the people. They are deceiving the people and making them think that they have life when they still live in death. Another place is 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. 1 Peter 2.6, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom... They were also appointed. The twofold result, just like it says in 2 Corinthians 2, a twofold result that this precious cornerstone, Christ, there are those who believe in him, 
and we will not be disappointed or put to shame. We will receive eternal life. And this stone is a precious value to us. He says in verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. That's what Christ means to us. But to others, to disbelievers, to unbelievers, those who are disobedient to what they hear, he is a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. He is the stone which the builders rejected. He is also the one that it says, verse 8, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. They stumble and fall, and their fall is a perilous fall. It's a dangerous fall. It's a fall uh, from which they cannot recover. And they were appointed for this fall, he says in verse 8. They were appointed. God ordained for this to happen. That means the word of God, that is Christ himself. Christ himself. When we preach Christ, there will be two main consequences, two main outcomes. There will be faith and there will be unbelief. These are the two. There will be life and there will be death. And it depends. Mysteriously, secretly, in whose heart God will change and produce life and another heart, the hard uh, heart becomes even more hard, more staunch, more stubborn in its rebellion. From death to death. Another place, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2, verse 20. 2 Peter 2, 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. This is a description of people who temporarily escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. These are people who used to live a, a wicked life. They came into the church setting temporarily. They cleansed themselves temporarily from that vile wickedness, that extreme wickedness, whatever it was that they used to pursue. They came into the church context temporarily. That's the key point. And then it says they are again entangled in them and are overcome. Entangled and overcome when they are entangled and overcome with their previous sins, he says, the last state has become worse for them than the first. The last condition is worse for them than the first condition. Why? Verse 21, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. The Holy Commandment, the Word of God, was delivered to them, and he's saying it would be better for them not to have ever heard of the truth of God's Word than having heard it to turn away from it. It's better not to hear the Word of God and go to hell than to hear the Word of God, disobey it, reject it, and go to hell. Why? Because Jesus said, in Matthew eleven twenty to 24 
He said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Caper- Capernaum, woe to you, Bethsaida, three cities where he and his disciples ministered. It, he says, woe to you. It, would, it will be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. It will be more tolerable for Sodom, that ancient city in the time of Abraham and Lot, in Genesis 18 and 19. It, would be, it will be better on the day of judgment, more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those three cities where Jesus ministered. Because they had more knowledge. They had the word of God. They saw the miracles of God. They saw a lot of things that Jesus and his disciples preached to them and how they benefited the people. Yet those three cities rejected it. So the day of judgment is will be worse. There will be a worse punishment in hell for Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Chorazin than for Sodom and Gomorrah. They are all in hell, but it's worse for some. That's what Peter means here. And to confirm this truth, he says in verse 22, 2 Peter 2.22, It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. A dog returns to its own vomit. We know that this happens. When dogs have upset stomachs, this is what dogs do, right? When they vomit, they will temporarily vomit and then go to that vomit and eat it up. They'll go to their own vomit and eat it up. And a sow, a a female pig, after washing, if you wash a pig, even a domestic one, even if you wash a pig, you let it loose, it will go to filth. It will go to whatever is a, a garbage pile. It will go there. It will become a filthy, dirty pig. That's what pigs do. It will wallow in the mire. The nature of these two animals, note here, the nature of these two animals has not changed. A dog remained a dog. He does not say the dog became a sheep and then became a dog again. And he doesn't say the sow became a sheep and then became a sow again. He says the sow resorted back to its nature. The dog resorted back to its nature. But temporarily, people thought everything was fine with that person. Everything was fine with that dog. The dog had changed. The dog now knows better not to eat its own vomit. No, it doesn't know better because its nature has not been changed. In this way, he's describing people who hear the word, temporarily are fixed, but then go back to their own old nature. Now, he continues in Hebrews 4. He continues in Hebrews 4 to describe the word of God. He says that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's sharper than a two-edged sword and also says it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He's using this analogy of a sword. The Word of God is the sword of God. And the sword of God is so effective, so living and active, that it is able to penetrate even as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The Word of God is the sword of God. The Bible speaks of this Word of God being a sword, such as Ephesians 6, 17 says, And take up the sword of the Spirit, 
or the word of God and the sword of the, which is the sword of the spirit. In Revelation chapter 2, even Jesus compares or John compares Jesus' words to a sword. First in Revelation chapter 1 verse 16, and in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Out of Jesus' mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. He doesn't mean a literal sword came out of his mouth. He means that his words came out and had the effect of a sword. Very powerful sword. Chapter 2, verse 12, Revelation 2, 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Notice that. Something is said because he has a two-edged sword. As, as well, 2.16. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And further, Revelation 19. Still Jesus. Jesus is this one that has the sword of the word. 19.15. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. He has this sword, and he's going to smite, destroy, strike down the nations, and rule them with a rod of iron, just by his word. And it only takes one. Verse 21 as well, 1921. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's the word of Christ that will be that judging word on that day of judgment. It's the word of Christ. This is important for us to understand. When he's describing the word of God that is like a two-edged sword, he's not talking about it in some kind of comfortable and gentle sense. He's talking about it in a very ominous sense, in a very frightful sense, that it is the word of Christ, the word of Christ. This is important because we have a fiction that's in common Christian culture. That is, the God of the Old Testament was loving and compassionate, I'm sorry, the God of the Old Testament was harsh, cruel, wrathful, impatient, quick to anger. But the God of the New Testament, because of Christ, Christ and the God of the New Testament, they are loving and kind, long-suffering. They tolerate everything. In fact, they have such a, a love towards people that even hell may not be real. Hell may not be real. And if it is real, it may not be forever. And it may not be as bad as the Bible depicts. The Bible might just be exaggerating the way hell is. This is the way people think of the God of the New Testament, and even if and even the Christ of the New Testament. But this passage is saying, and Revelation is saying, that's not true. That God, by the word of Christ, he has a two-edged sword, which cuts on both sides, which can penetrate deeper and more, uh, with more um, uh, lethalness than a, a one-edged sword. That's the way the sword of Christ is. This is the way Jesus was and what he taught. John chapter 12, Jesus spoke like this during his ministry. In John chapter 12, verse 48, he says the following. John 12, 
48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Whoever rejects Christ rejects and rejects his sayings. You see, the two go together. We can't say we, we reject Christ or we accept Christ, but we don't like his sayings. The two go together, and that is what will judge him. The sayings of Christ or the word of Christ I spoke, the word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. His word will reveal everything about who we are on the day of judgment. Further, James 1, James 1, 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. When we obey this word, we will be blessed in what we do. And when we look intently at the perfect law, we're going to see a reflection of us in that perfect law. Not in a mirror, a mirror where we are forgetful of who we are, but when we look at the perfect law, it will reveal perfectly who we are. And then we act accordingly. For after all, it says in James 4.17, Therefore to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is the way in which the sword of Christ will pierce us and will even do so as far as the vision of soul spirit, joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He uses this analogy of the sword in reference to soul and spirit. He is not saying that a literal sword is able to do something related to an invisible soul and invisible spirit. Of course, he doesn't mean that. What he means is that this word is able to make distinctions with our internal being with our unseen nature, our soul. And perhaps by soul he means our affections, our affections, our feelings, the, the things that are in our senses. That's our soul. And for spirit, our mind, our reasoning capacities. In all of this, Jesus, Jesus' words are able to make distinctions and to cut here and there, to know and do things that we ourselves cannot do properly or others cannot do properly of us, but Jesus can do those things properly of us. And as well with joints and marrow, using this analogy is very hard with the joints and the marrow to make a separation. You have to cut, you have to pierce, you have to uh, conduct a surgery in order to get to the joints and the marrow. Well, that which is done with difficulty with us is not done with difficulty with Christ. Christ is able to do so just like that, quickly. And accurately, he is the best surgeon in the world because he is a spiritual surgeon with miraculous powers. Then, verse 13. Verse 13, he says that, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Two major points here. God is omniscient, 
And God is preparing us for the day of judgment. God is omniscient. He knows all things, and he is preparing the world for the day of judgment. These two truths are here in verse 13. These are the two truths that Adam and Eve overlooked. They were blinded by covetousness, by evil desire, and they overlooked these two truths. Did they not? Did they not know when the serpent Satan tempted them that God knows everything that's going on? But they were so blinded by their sin, their desire to sin, and the consequence of their sin, that they sowed fig leaves and hid themselves among the trees of the garden. They did not realize that all things are open and laid bare. God knows. God knows where you are, whether it's dark, whether it's quiet, whether no one else is around. It's just you. You're the only human there. God knows where you are, what you're doing, what you did do, and why you are ashamed and afraid and why you go into the trees or go into some place to commit sin. God knows all of that. That's what Adam and Eve did not realize. And they are typical of all of us. Our first parents are just like all of us. We do the same thing all the time. This is what happens when we sin. When we sin, we forget these great attributes of God, that He is omniscient, knows everything. Number two, that He is omnipotent, has all power. He has all power. And He is omnipresent, present everywhere. When we sin... These truths are often jettisoned from our minds because the temptation and the desire to sin is right before us. We forget. He knows it all. He sees it all. He's got all the power. He can do whatever he wants as a consequence of our sin and even to prevent us from sinning because he is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. Also, 1 Corinthians 10.13. He will grant us some of his power to overcome sin. As well, that he's present everywhere. The things that we do in secret, the things that we think in secret, in our own minds, inside of us, such as covetousness, these things that we have within us, God knows. He's present everywhere. And there is no way to escape. Then... The second part, the day of judgment, he says, to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. To the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Remember, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God's eyes are everywhere in observation because he is not a vain onlooker. He is not uh, a gaper. There are no delays with God in gaping. Nothing like that happens. When his eyes are moving to and fro, it's not as though he is collecting knowledge for himself. He already knows. But he's telling us, he's indicating to us, he's keeping a record of everything because there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. That day is yet to come. That's why Jesus said in John 12, 48, it is the word, the word I said is what will judge him at the last day. The last day is the day of judgment. This is what is set before us. We must understand God created the world 
to prepare the world for the day of judgment. Romans 3, 6, For otherwise how will God judge the world? Paul says. Paul says, For otherwise how will God judge the world? And he says it that way because he wants us to know that God didn't create the world to be idle. He didn't create the world in order for things to go out of hand. He didn't have a plan B or a plan C when he created the world. When God created the world, he prepared the world that he created for the day of judgment. And we all must be prepared for that final day, that last day, either in Christ or outside of Christ. We have to do with God. We are held accountable to God in the person of Christ. In Christ, Christ, who is mischaracterized as being only loving, only gentle, and never just, and never righteous. That's not true. Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has appointed Christ to be the judge of all of us. We have to do with him. We are going to face Christ on that day of judgment. John 5, 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man, Christ, is the one who will execute judgment both now and on the day of judgment. The Father has granted that to the Son, to some to give life and, and to others to execute his wrath, the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, as we read in Revelation 19. Jesus is the one who executes this fierce wrath of God. For unbelievers, this ends in the lake of fire. This ends in hell because they would not believe the gospel. They did not believe it, and they would not believe it. This is what awaits them. But for us, for, what, for us who believe, there is a sense in which we need to prepare ourselves for that day too. We must prepare ourselves for that day, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Therefore also... We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or evil. He tells us that we now must be pleasing to him, right now, because we're not at home, we are absent from our home. We are here as strangers and sojourners on the earth. But whether we're in heaven or on the earth, we're always to please him. Why? Because we, verse 10, Paul is writing this, so Paul is including himself. 
we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil. This verse teaches us that we will need to be prepared for that great day because we will have a recompense. We will have a reward. Christ will distribute rewards according to what we have done. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day. He means the day of judgment. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. The foundation that we all have laid is Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous in him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 we have passed out of de death into life because we have believed in Christ. John 5, 24. He who has the Son of God has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. 1 John 5, 12. So, if we believe, we have life and there's no condemnation. However, from this passage, this foundation of no condemnation in Christ has a building, a superstructure on that foundation. And that superstructure can have gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Wood, hay, straw are those perishable items, destructible items. And he's saying to us that when we conduct deeds by grace, through faith, in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, they are precious to God, pleasing to God, gold, silver, precious stones, we will receive rewards for those. However, we believers, inevitably, throughout our life, until our deathbed, until our final breath, our good deeds will be mingled with some evil deeds, called here wood, hay, straw. And on the day of judgment, our evil deeds will be held accountable. We have to do with them before Christ, and they will be burned up. Though they are burned up, he says in verse 15, 1 Corinthians 3.15, If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So we believers, let's prepare for that day too. Rejoice in what God has done for us in Christ. Know that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. However, we cannot be lackadaisical. We cannot be flippant with our Christian life. We must Work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do, according to his pleasure. Philippians 2, 13, 12 and 13. This is what we must do. Prepare for that day of judgment. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray that you'll grant to us this desire to know your word, to believe your word, to have your word permeate all of our life, our thinking, everything that we say and do. 
May it be manifested in us as individuals, couples, families. May we spread this word to others too. Give us full confidence in it. Grant us a hunger and thirst for it, a hunger and thirst for the word of righteousness. Please also prepare us for that day, knowing that whatever we do now, it is for that day to meet you face to face. We pray that we will be well prepared and that Christ will say to us, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. May that be true of us. Help us to reject the world, the things of the world, and to love the Father. In the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.